0: You picked a special good day to tune in for Spirit in Action folks because I've been fighting a cold and instead you get Peterson Toscano. He's our guest host today sharing riches from his Citizens Climate Radio podcast and I have multiple reasons for especially liking this show. First of all, whereas Peterson usually does an all things considered type format, the first half of today's program is more along the lines of the personally close interview style I do. And And I love hearing his interchange with his guests. And secondly, the first half also deals with religion directly, and I hope it reaches widely in an area where too often we're at each other's throats. Leave it to Peterson Toscano to bring a glittering gem of a gift to us.
1: Over to you, Peterson. Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you for listening to this episode of Spirit in Action. In this episode, you will hear a discussion about climate change and the Bible. It goes well beyond creation care. And if you want to engage in climate work and you don't know where to start, we will hear from two folks who decided to take matters into their own hands. They transformed their local government. And now it's responding to climate change. And Ruth Abraham will share with us how a classic Christian hymn and a Bible verse helped to ground her climate work. But first I chat with Kyle Myard scott He's the vice president of the Evangelical Environmental Network. Kyle holds an undergraduate degree in religious studies from Calvin University and a master of divinity degree from Western Theological Seminary. He's an ordained minister in the Christian Reformed Church in North America. I first met Kyle when he was the national organizer and spokesman for Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. He appeared with Karina Newsom in our most downloaded episode, What Does the Bible Say About Climate Change? Earlier this year, InterVarsity Press published Kyle's book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, A Christian Call to Climate Action. In our most recent conversation, you will hear us talking a lot about the Bible and how it convicts us to do good works for people and our earthly home. When you meet somebody and they ask, so what do you do? What's your go-to answer these days?
2: Yeah, I, I wear a few different hats, but I think my favorite go-to answer is a pastor who works to help the church recover its calling and responsibility to care for God's creation. I, I have a almost five-year-old, he'll be five in a couple weeks, and a 14-month-old, they keep us very, very busy. I say us because another important part of my identity is I'm a husband. I've been married to my wife for almost 10 years. There
1: are some identities that some Christians think might disqualify someone from being an actual Christian. For <laughs> instance... <laughs> for some, you know, being a liberal, you can't be a liberal and a Christian or others say you can't be an ultra conservative and be a Christian. And a a lot of evangelicals might think you you can't really be a Christian if you're an environmentalist or Mm. if you're concerned about climate change. So my question is, are you a real Christian and why? How is that possible? (laughs) It's a great question.
2: Yeah. So one of the things that, that I like to do sometimes if I'm giving a presentation at a church or, or to a, a group of Christians is I like to ask them, what do you call somebody who cares about the environment? It's an opportunity for people to kind of name what you just named. So you get answers like tree hugger, uh, environmentalist, liberal, and it's great. We kind of we're kind of laughing. We're rolling. And then I, I say, great answers. What about disciple? At the Evangelical Environmental Network, where I'm the vice president, a lot of what I try to do in that work is let people name those perceptions that a lot of them have and then trouble it and say, okay, great, those are all fine answers, but can we call somebody who cares about the environment or God's creation, can we call them a disciple? Is it possible that a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus? is actually to care about the works of his hands, and to recognize the ways in which environmental harm and degradation and pollution and climate change, all of the things that are degrading God's good creation, not only harm non-human creatures, but also humans. And is it possible that this call that Jesus puts on all of us to love God and to love our neighbor is inseparable from how we treat the rest of creation? Because If we're going to love God who created all things and stepped back and called it good over and over again, and who still loves and cares for it and provides for it, we have to care for the works of his hands and do what he said in Genesis, which is to serve and protect it. And if we're going to love our neighbors, we have to grapple with the realities that are harming our neighbors around the world and down the street. Things like stronger storms, more prolonged protracted droughts, wildfires, pollution from industry, and setting fossil fuels on fire. All of these things, in my mind, are inextricably wrapped up with what it means to try to follow Jesus well and put into practice what he said was most important, which was to love God and to love our neighbor, We as the Evangelical Environmental Network, as Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, we don't do this work, and I certainly don't do this work because I consider myself a quote-unquote environmentalist. And I don't do this work because I'm a Democrat or a Republican. I do this because I'm a Christian. Jesus is the reason that I do the climate work that I do. I'm just trying to get better at following him because that's the most important thing in my life. Likewise, my faith has been enriched and deepened immensely by my climate work and and my climate action. The the task of evangelizing the good news of Jesus and the good news of the kingdom of God has to be enfleshed. It it has to be concrete. It has to be active it has to be a verb and it it can't just be praying with somebody, the sinner's prayer, and then saying, congratulations, you said the magic words, now you're in the kingdom of heaven. It has to be deeper than that. It it has to connect to people's real lives because that's what Jesus did. He was impatient for the kingdom of God to break in right here, right now.
1: Mm -hmm. I love that. Impatient for the kingdom of God. That's awesome
2: when i first became
1: a christian at a little bible church in a little town in pennsylvania everyone kept asking everyone what's your life verse and at first uh-huh. i had no idea what they were talking about like what what do you mean <laughs> like your life verse like one to guide you through your life and mine has changed through the years depending on where i'm at but i definitely have a climate life verse mm. What I love about the Bible is it can apply to lots of things, and that can be done inappropriately, and it can be done <laughs> very movingly. And so for me, yeah. my climate life verse these days is Romans twelve, one and two. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, and be not fashioned according to this world, mm. but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that she may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God.
2: Mm.
1: The part that really jumps out at me is to not be fashioned according to this world. Mm. I find that life has gotten more and more detached from nature. And we noticed this particularly during the pandemic when we were able to reconnect with nature in so many ways you know in the world it's like we're being told that you know we're apart from nature that we can go into nature and really what i'm hearing as i'm sitting and listening is that i am nature and yes. and i have to be transformed by renewing my mind to see that i'm not outside of this ecosystem i am reliant upon it
2: yeah oh i love that peterson thanks for sharing that
1: any life verses or climate life verses you'd
2: like to share One of my favorite climate verses is from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in him, all things hold together. that passage but one of the things i love most is this repetition of all things all things all things all things Mm. um it's over and over in that passage and i i think it's it's paul trying to get our attention and and trying to undo that anthropocentrism that i just talked about it's not that you know christ created humans only and and in him humans hold together know all things that christ is concerned about all things that everything was made for him not for us and for our personal use and this idea that he's reconciling all things to himself mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. human hearts and human souls which tends to so often be the focus of of our gospel but everything somehow all of heaven and earth is bound up in god's saving sites the whole ball of wax when it comes to God's rescue mission was about turning the invisible visible, right? You think about mm, the incarnation, it was yes. taking the invisible God and making him visible. <laughs> right. Like God, God is all about making himself visible to his people, whether it's through Christ and in the incarnation, whether it's in the bread and the wine of communion, whether it's mm, right. in the waters of baptism or the, the pillar of cloud and fire that led the Israelites out of bondage into freedom, whether it's the temple or the tabernacle, like God, God is an invisible God, but he's all about making himself visible and coming close to his people.
1: You echo so much of what Reverend Tony Campolo said when I interviewed him for uh, an episode here on Citizens Climate Radio. He wrote a book back in 1992, How to Rescue the Earth Without Worshipping Nature, a Christian Mm. Call to Save Creation. And boy, he's so fiery about this and so fiery about our responsibility as believers that it is a call. You wrote the book, Following Jesus in a Warming World, a Christian Call to Climate Action.
2: It's part memoir. It's part theological biblical studies and and it's part field guide. I especially wrote it for millennials and Gen Z Christians because a lot of it was born out of conversations that I had when I was at young evangelicals for climate action, traveling the country, talking to young Christians. I especially wanted that audience to feel seen, to feel validated, to be told, no, you're not crazy. Yes, this is central to our call to follow Jesus And to give them tools for how to do it. I wanted to read from my epilogue. This was me trying to offer a hopeful vision to close the book about what I think it might look like for the church to wake up again to its calling to care for God's creation, to lead the way. I structured the epilogue as a, a letter to my imagined grandchild on her high school graduation day. So It's dated May 22, 2066. On the day you were born, I spent a lot of time ruminating on your future, an old habit. I guess I picked it up around the time your dad was born. Back then, the fierce storms and punishing heat that have been taken for granted during your life were just beginning to break through into our reality. For much of my life to that point, they had been mostly abstractions, dangerous offspring of our inaction that would one day grow up and move out of the house to wreak their havoc on the earth, but innocuous enough as they merely gestated in the womb of our collective ignorance and denial. By the time your dad was born in 2018, though, the consequences of our procrastination were becoming harder and harder to ignore. There were some our age, even then, who were choosing not to have kids, deciding that the future was too dangerous, too unpredictable to be able to morally justify yoking a human life to it for decades to come without that human's prior and informed consent. A sentiment your grandma and I could certainly understand, though never quite embrace, I guess our hope in God's good plans for the world has always been more stubborn than our fear of our ability to derail them. That doesn't mean the fear hasn't been there, ever mingling with the hope. On the day your father came into the world, that alloy of hope and fear was forged and lodged deep in my heart for good. There's a paradox to loving other mortals. That even as your heart remains fixed in your chest, its twin beats inside someone else's. You watch your own heart's mirror as it jumps and laughs and aches. It's a phenomenon that repeats itself whenever we make the dangerous, awesome choice to love. All these years, as my own fearful heart has pumped dutifully inside my aging chest, it has replicated itself as first your dad and his siblings were born, and then again, when you and your siblings and cousins all entered this precious, precarious place, all of my dear ones.
1: Wow. You do something so important in writing this letter. And i it's something that I, I think is very helpful for all of us to do who do climate work. And that is to imagine a future where there's success. Yeah. Yep. It would be so easy to write a letter of apology mm. <laughs> for all the mm-hmm. ways we didn't do it. <laughs> but it takes a lot of creativity and determination to imagine a world where solutions change things. Yeah. And I believe this is something unique that believers bring to the climate movement, we believe in forgiveness and redemption, new life and miracles. We believe that hearts and minds can change and we have experience of it. And the gift that we can bring this movement is hope Uh, and, and hope grounded in reality, of course, but hope that that sustains us because we do believe in impossible things.
2: I mean, that there is in there a note of apology because we have failed, right? Mm-hmm. We should apologize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we have things to, we have things to apologize for, but we don't have to live there. The biblical structure of hope is instructive there. And I like what you said about hope grounded in reality. I've studied scripture in seminary and and that's that's kind of my training and my background. And especially in the Psalms, when you look at the formula of hope for the, the ancient Hebrew people, it was always Lament moving into hope, but you could never Mm -hmm. get to hope without lament. You Mm -hmm. had to go through lament first. We can't stay in lament, but there has to be a role for lament with movement toward hope if hope is going to be authentic and, and biblical and meaningful. Anything
1: else you want to add about your book, about Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, about climate change and faith?
2: I think we covered it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah this is this is a great great conversation thank
1: you i feel like i was at church like a good church
2: <laughs> <laughs> a, good, a good church not just church a not good
1: just one. church a good one Kyle mayard Scott, author of Following Jesus in a Warming World, a Christian call to climate action. It's published by InterVarsity Press and is available wherever you get books. You can learn more about Kyle and the book over at his website, kylebairdscott.com. I'll have links in the show notes for you. Visit cclusa.org/radio and look for episode 84. As part of this conversation about faith, climate, and the Bible, I asked Citizens Climate Radio team member Ruth Abraham to reflect on a Bible passage that motivates her to care for creation.
3: When Peterson presented the idea of a climate life verse, I thought I'd first pitch my favorite Christmas song, Joy to the World. It's by Isaac Watts, and first released in 1719. It's a classic. If you're not familiar with it, the first verse goes like this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing, say it with me now, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. The song continues with imagery of white fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains joining together in harmonious praise to their creator. But the resonating line for me is prepare him room. The line is from Luke chapter two, verse seven. And I quote, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. End quote. The first time around, Jesus entered the earth with very humble beginnings. Many nativity scenes depict the manger where baby Jesus was born, surrounded by donkeys and horses and hay, the opposite of the ideal place to keep a newborn, especially one of royal descent. Now, as many Christian believers, including myself, await his second coming, We have a second chance to spruce up the place a bit and i'll take note from the best host i know my mother she makes sure our home is immaculate for any guest's first time into our home every forgotten corner gets dusted all our fun table decor gets taken out from hiding and are set as centerpieces and after we're done mopping the floor It's shining like the top of the Chrysler Building Tidy. This ritual is done so that we can create the most inviting atmosphere. And that got me thinking on how to best prepare him room for a second visit. Someone I acknowledge as the king of kings is coming back to visit the planet he left over 2,000 years ago. How much effort should I put into cleaning the land and the water and caring for those creatures? Who's already doing that work? And how can I contribute to the effort? As for me, I would start off with prioritizing renewable energy and reforestation so we could guarantee clean air and preserve lungs and lives while we're at it. This is kingdom building for me and how I approach both my faith and my professional purpose in life.
1: Thank you so much, Ruth. Now it's time for the Resilience Corner with Tamara Staten, CCL's Education and Resilience Coordinator.
4: Hi, I'm Tamara Staten, and this is the Resilience Corner. I'm excited to dive into our new series called Resilient Climateering Through Unexpected Climate Connections. This isn't a series about weather or science or graphs or data, though I might reference a few of those from time to time. Instead, this is a series about things that help us worry less and act more on climate, experienced through a lens of playful curiosity. Together, we'll explore practical ideas for thriving in the face of climate change so that we can be as effective as possible for as long as possible. Let's start with the concept of climateering. When I was a kid, I distinctly recall watching a super hokey TV show called The Mouseketeers, hosted by Annette Funicello. A bunch of kids ran around and then sat in a circle proudly donning Mickey Mouse ears. From what I've heard, Miley Cyrus and Ariana Grande are more recent Mouseketeer representatives. But when you combine climate change, a very serious topic for most of us, with the very light-hearted concept of a Mouseketeer, you get a Climateer. Someone deeply concerned about climate change, who infuses a playful spirit into their climate perspective and approach. A climateer does their best to enjoy the process of doing what matters so deeply. During a workout, one of my coaches said that just because we take the work seriously, doesn't mean we have to take ourselves seriously. In other words, just because something is serious, doesn't mean it has to be heavy. Climateering is one way to not only stay present to the purpose in the climate work that we do, but to truly enjoy the process as well. And in regards to resilience, I see personal resilience as our ability to stay strong and steady in the face of climate change. What does that look like? Or more importantly, what might that sound like? A resilient mind says, I got this. This is hard, but worth it. I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. Ooh, this feels like way too much right now, but I'll figure out a way. Resilience isn't a matter of consistently streaming Pollyanna thoughts. Instead, it's about recognizing a challenge and moving through it so that we're a little bit stronger on the other side. This strength adds up and can help us overcome the next challenge. In upcoming episodes, I'm going to stretch my imagination by creating relationships where none seem to exist. Are you up for honing your playful spirit as a climateer? Play along and try to guess in advance where I might be going with each of these connections and bonus points if you'd like to share your guesses with the rest of us. Email us at radio at citizensclimate.org or share on our Twitter account at citizenscradio. Next month, I'll dive into our first set of unexpected climate connections, joy and climate, two concepts that we usually don't pair together but actually have quite a powerful relationship. I'm Tamara Staten with the Resilience Corner. Thank you for listening and for your commitment to progress. To learn more about tools, trainings, and resources for staying strong through the climate challenge, check out our Resilience Hub at cclusa.org forward resilience. From there, you can also access and share Resilience Corner videos with friends and family who might be interested. And until next month, consider this. Find your passion. Let it guide you and you'll do amazing things for our world.
0: That was Tamara Stanton sharing her segment of Peterson Toscano's Citizen Climate Radio. I'm grateful to Peterson for guest hosting Spirit in Action today, as he does four times a year. I've got links to him and the guests he's featuring today on my site, nordenspiritradio.org. We've got 19 years of programs and guest links and info on the 35 to 45 stations that carry our program on our site. Again, northernspiritradio.org. So please come by, post a comment, and support us with a donation. We're counting on you. And please help out your local community radio stations. More goodies coming now from Citizens Climate Radio.
1: Hi there. Thanks for sticking around for the second half of the show. And if you're just tuning in, I'm Peter Toscano, bringing you climate change stories that typically do not get in the news. This is a doom-free zone. Not because we don't have massive challenges to take on. Oh, we do. But, but in order to stay motivated and inspired, it helps to focus on what a new world might just look like. It's more inspiring to talk about the world you're fighting for. Now, lots of people send me links all the time uh, to artists taking on climate change. And while I appreciate the passion behind some of the art, I do cringe at times at how awful it turns out. (laughs) Not to discourage anyone from doing art around climate change. Creating art can help us each individually tap into our emotions and find a way to personally connect with the issue. And that may just be enough. Not every creation we make has to be released into the world. I say this because for years, people have been sending me really bad songs about climate change. The message is always quite good, but I need more than a good message. I want a good song. I'm pleased to announce that in the second half of the show, you are going to hear an original song that is really good. What amazes me about this song is that it was written by a group of people who didn't even plan on writing a song. It literally just happened. Of course, having a master musician and organizer like Dane Myers definitely helped. You will hear the radio premiere of a new song, Live, Laugh, Lobby. First, I speak with two climate advocates who have used their personal power to influence their university's sustainability policies. They decided to take the work to the next level, first to their municipality and then an entire region. Dr. Peter Buck and Brandy Robinson are colleagues at Penn State University. Peter is the Associate Director of Climate and Sustainability Education. is an associate teaching professor in energy and mineral engineering. In addition to chairing the technical advisory group for the center region's climate action and adaptation plan, Brandy also co-directs the local climate action program with Peter working for a university keeps both Brandy and Peter very busy, but that doesn't stop them from finding creative and effective ways to motivate their community and region to take on climate change. In fact, In his spare time, Peter ran for local office. Both Brandy and Peter are brimming with enthusiasm. When it comes to solutions to address the causes and impacts of climate change, they refuse to take no for an answer. We recently met online to talk about their community work. From our conversation, you will learn about the vital role local political power plays in taking on climate change. I need to warn you, though. Their enthusiasm is contagious.
5: I work on local solutions to climate change.
6: I work at Penn State's Sustainability Institute, where I work on academic and outreach solutions to climate change. I'm also an elected official. I served on the Ferguson Township Board of Supervisors, and I currently serve on the State College Area School Board.
5: I think my most important identity right now is that I am a mother. I have an 11-year-old daughter, and I think that that really frames a lot of my thinking about what I want the future to look like. And I'm an avid thrifter.
6: I am father of a 15-year-old boy. I am engaged to a wonderful woman named Hillary. I'm a person with a kind of hopeless amount of energy. (laughs) Um, I single speed mountain bike. I play heavy metal music. I just learned six Iron Maiden guitar solos, um, which I'm very excited about. And uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic.
1: Hopelessly energetic is definitely a great way to describe you. Um, I don't. <laughs> I'm sure people who work close to you is like, when can he slow down? We can't keep up. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And for listeners who don't know, you know, they hear college or university. Explain the scale of the, of the university that you work for.
5: We have our own zip code at this campus, so it is functionally really much more akin to like a city or municipality than a than a college campus. It's it's got quite a big physical footprint.
6: Penn State has about 40,000 or 45,000 students at its main campus with a budget of around $7 billion. That's billion with a B. When it comes to things related to, say, climate change, we are an elite university in terms of our research and the application of knowledge around renewable energy nuclear power, the science of climate change, environmental and water-related sciences, green buildings, the grid, the things that people think about practically every day that have to do with mitigating or adapting to climate change. Penn State does an awful lot of work. It's also true that we are historically one of the biggest researchers of fossil fuels as well. So people make a joke sometimes and call us Fraxylvania State University because we've done a huge amount of research into natural gas. I believe we are in the top two in terms of coal research as well.
1: Tell me the story about how you all got involved with getting off a of campus into local government.
6: I was elected to the Ferguson Township Board of Supervisors in November of 2015. I initially ran because there was a land use dispute about a housing development. The local environmental groups were and individuals were very upset about this. Someone said, "You know, we need people to run." And I went, "Hey, maybe I'll do that." And then I decided to do it. When I got elected, I knew That I wanted to create a climate action plan without actually calling it a climate action plan. Because I didn't think that our region was ready for something that you would call it that. What I started doing was thinking about, okay, where are the things that Ferguson Township does? Where can I influence whatever is happening? And so the first thing that happened was we were looking at a stormwater ordinance. In talking about the stormwater ordinance, I was able to, and with other members of the board who were pretty aware, I was able to talk about increased precipitation at certain times of year and that peak events were getting more intense. So we had to have an adaptive capacity in the regulated stormwater infrastructure that could deal with that. The next thing was in the budget discussion, we had a public works facility coming up for design. I had talked with then chair, Steve Miller, and I said, what do you think about requiring that it meet LEED Gold, leadership and energy and environmental design gold? Then we can influence its design to maximize energy efficiency and also have on-site really good... Best management practices for stormwater. He said, I think that's great. And I said, we can do native plantings and all these kinds of things. And that passed five to zero. And it was four Democrats and one Republican who voted for that. In 2017, it became very clear that Donald Trump was going to withdraw the United States from the Paris Agreement. I had been working with a gentleman who, Brandy, Knows as well, Don Brown. He and I had co authored a resolution about achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions for some totally different thing. It had to do with, I don't know, it was like a bunch of organizations in Pennsylvania and it was just going nowhere. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'm going to change this resolution and I'm going to make it for Ferguson Township. I did. And you can read it. It's Resolution 2017 14. It says that we will achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and in order to do that, it has to be economically feasible, transparent, and fair. We formed an ad hoc committee, because that's what a government will do, right, to tell itself how it's supposed to proceed. I immediately, after the passage of that vote, I reached out to Brandy and I said, you should chair this committee.
5: You are definitely right that when Trump announced that we would be withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, that put a whole new emphasis on local action. But I would argue that was already bubbling to the surface after the U.S. kind of didn't really seal the deal on Kyoto. Even, even all the way back then, local governments started to realize, well, we probably aren't going to be able to just sit around and wait for a federal response. And then I think that super kicked into high gear with the Trump administration, because at the end of the day, the impacts of climate change are felt locally. It's our local elected officials and our local organizations who have to respond to those impacts and deal with them and pay for them. Understanding our changing climate and not only what we can do to to mitigate against the causes of those changes, but also to prepare for these impacts along the way is inherently local work that needs to be done. When Peter asked me if I would would chair this committee, I was super excited because I had done my graduate research on local scale responses to climate change, looking at this University Park campus here of Penn State as a test bed of local action. And then after I graduated, I expanded that work working for our Office of Physical Plant to all of our Commonwealth campuses to get an idea of what our university footprint was and what we could start to do about it. This was really bringing me back to work that had been near and dear to my heart in grad school. We formed a committee. First things first, we we'd needed to do a greenhouse gas emissions inventory. Peter and friends had already committed us to reducing those emissions to zero, and we didn't know what those were yet. <laughs> so, so that was the first order of business. We undertook that those uh, emissions inventories are imperfect estimates, but they are very useful planning tools. And if you then replicate them using the same methodology, you can at least compare imperfect apples to imperfect apples and see if you're making progress. Throughout the course of our inventorying work, the region started to take notice and hired a sustainability planner with the specific task of creating a regional emissions inventory, and eventually a climate action and adaptation plan. For these purposes, the center region includes six municipalities, of which Ferguson is one. We kind of then put our own Ferguson work on hold to help support the effort happening at the region, recognizing that it wouldn't really make sense for us to have six highly individualized totally developed in silos, emissions inventories, or climate action plans. We all kind of identify as state college in the center region. It's basically the six municipalities that make up the school district, I think. correct? You know, while this regional work is happening, Penn State, whose University Park campus is kind of right in the middle of that region, and they're also continuing to do work. And we're trying to work together to see where we can Build partnerships and 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 tackle these things collectively, so that we aren't just all kind of spinning in our own hamster wheels. One of the biggest challenges for climate change as an issue, I mean there are many, is that if you spend too much time looking at it as a global problem, it can be very depressing. The doom and gloom of climate change can be a very real barrier to to doing anything. You know, I see this with students all the time. They genuinely want to know what they can do to make a difference. And while individual action on its own is not going to save us, I also think it's counterproductive to tell them, well, it doesn't actually matter if you recycle that. That's the wrong message too. Mm -hmm. Working on this at the local scale in my community where, where I live and work and have a connection to, that helps me compartmentalize it in a way where I feel like I'm doing something meaningful that is actually creating change right here where i live i'm a big fan of and i think this is probably because like just as a person in general i'm very conflict diverse <laughs> and so i'm a big fan of diffusing all of the political nonsense out of the issue of climate change at the end of the day caring about climate change is actually i would argue one of the most selfish endeavors we can take as a species because we are trying to save our own tails. This is not about polar bears and it never was. We need the climate to be stable and healthy so that we have a habitable planet for ourselves. If you want to think about it selfishly, you can. If you want to think about it more altruistically about protecting biodiversity and all of the other things for their own intrinsic value, that's good too. But it doesn't have to be that. When you open that up, to it being about saving our own tails too, you open the opportunity for collaboration with many more people. You don't have to make climate change someone's top priority. You have to connect climate change to what they already care about and figure out how you can work together on that.
6: I wholeheartedly agree with everything that Brandy said. And in fact, in our local climate action program classes that we teach, we ground everything basically in a love of home. We all live in a place. It is very likely at this point that people there are quite aware of how the changed climate, the anthropogenically changed climate has impacted their lives.
5: People just currently don't know where to start. I just moved into a new house this summer and it's a new build. So I have a blank canvas of what I can do with my yard, I want to make thoughtful decisions and do native plantings and things that will be good for our pollinator friends.
6: Whether it's adaptation or mitigation, one of the best things that you can do is to talk about climate change in a value-centered, scientifically valid way that is also focused on what can we do as individuals and together. So that's a thing that any individual can do. You can just talk about it with people you know. Don't underestimate the power of pooled donations. We have Clearwater Conservancy here in central Pennsylvania. Individuals and individual farmers, in particular the Meyer family, they had a tract of land. Individuals and municipalities worked together to fund a large riparian buffer. That's adaptation that is good for a tributary of a class A exceptional value trout stream in central Pennsylvania. And then the other thing that individuals can do is lobby and vote. Lobby and vote. Lobby and vote. Lobby and vote. Your municipal officials, your school board directors, your representatives in the state house, your state senators, your county commissioners, you can go to a meeting and say something better yet. Ask them out for coffee talk with them, get to know them. What makes them tick? Connect climate change to that. Climate change is a social problem. It's a social problem. If each of us does some small role, that actually is pooling. And by aggregating that, you aggregate power and change. And that's awesome. That's what we need.
1: that was Peter Buck and Brandy Robinson from State College, Pennsylvania. To learn more about their work at Penn State, visit sustainability.psu.edu. They're both active on social media. Learn how you can follow them by visiting our show notes at cclusa.org/radio. That's cclusa.org/radio. Our good news story today comes from Dane Meyer. Although he lives in Miami, Florida, his good news story and the accompanying song were inspired by events at the Citizens Climate International Conference held in Washington, D.C. last month.
7: What's up, CCLers? My name is Dane. I'm a musician and a producer, and I'm here at the National Conference and was really inspired to create a song to try to capture the sentiments and the energy here at the national conference. And so I was walking through the hotel lobby and I saw somebody playing a piano in the lobby and it turned out to be a CCL member. I was like, okay, well, this is where the song starts right now. Uh, So I got my laptop out, asked if I could record them uh, with what they were playing. When we got done recording the piano, I needed to save this project file on my computer And so i asked andrew the pianist um, what we should name the song and he said live laugh lobby because it was written on the notebooks that they gave to us here at the conference and i thought what a great name for it and then that night someone had heard about it and brought their trombone and so they added their trombone and it sounded like this so i added some drums with it then after we did the trombone i thought well let's get a hook going so I was just thinking of Live, Laugh,
8: Lobby Live, laugh, Lobby
7: And then people started coming to the game room because they had heard about this song creation process. So I asked everyone to reflect on their experience and the things that they've learned, the things that they care about with the environment and the progress that they're looking to make through Citizens Climate Lobby. And we had probably 8 or 12 people Contribute snippets of lyrics, uh, material to Lyrics Space. And then to tie it all together, I felt like we really needed to affirm what our asks were here at the conference, because that's really what this is all about: making a clear statement of what's needed to move our country and our earth. Uh, into a safer place and so I thought let's just write something that spells out two of the big asks here which is the Carbon Fee and Dividend Act and then Permitting Reform. So
8: right now my primary ask the Carbon Fee and Dividend Act which means we gradually price these and price externalities and make this a fair fight for renewable energy
7: One thing I want to highlight about this project is we didn't have any gear with us to do this project. I was not prepared to do this project. We had the lobby piano a guitar and a trombone and my Apple earbuds which we recorded everything on in the game room and then later I recorded some things on my Apple Earbuds back in my hotel. This is completely improvised using just what we happened to have with us at the time, Um, and I'm still really excited about the result. Now here's the full song.
8: Kind of feels like we're finally showing up for the climate, standing up for the earth, trying to preserve the future that everybody deserves. We're making our voices heard, we don't sit on the side in silence now. Why does it seem like power's always trying to divide us, man? That's why I'm smiling when I reach across the island. Kindness to price these on price externalities and make us a fair fight for renewable energy besides that hey, my second ask is to help us with permitting reform come on because if we can act fast and rise to the task then that's how we change the world come on because heat waves wildfires outside our time is up hurricanes no change today we won't hide from it because we're gonna live last we change, gonna change the world let me get the claps in there, say Live one more time, one more time. Live
7: Hey CCL. It's been a couple of weeks since the DC conference. I had a blast. I'm back in Miami now. I wanted to tell you, I also make other songs to try to make sustainability feel more like an adventure and less like a nightmare. Like this album that I made while living out of my Tesla for a year, or this rap that I made about environmental justice in Florida. This fall, I'm doing a series of concerts in people's living rooms to try to spread this message about sustainability. Think like NPR Tiny Desk Concert. So if you're interested in learning more about what these concerts are and how to host one of these climate concerts in your living room at no cost to you, uh, send me an email at Dane @dane at danemyers.com or send me a DM on Instagram at Dane Myers. We'd love to say hello to you, connect with you, and work towards helping spread this message of sustainability alongside you. Cheers. Thanks so much for including me. See you next time.
1: Bye. To learn more about Dane Myers and his music, visit DaneMyers.com. That's danemyers.com. If you have a good news story you want to share on the show, please email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we want you to be effective in the climate work you do. So, we provide training, local group meetings, and many resources. They're all designed to help you build the confidence and skills needed to pursue climate solutions. Find out how you can learn, grow, and connect with others who are engaged in meaningful work. Visit cclusa.org. That's cclusa.org. Thank you so much for spending this time with me on Spirit in Action. Now, back to Mark Helps Meet.
0: Thanks, Peterson. Always great to have you sitting in for me. Remember, links are on Nordenspiritradio.org, folks. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action.